Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Interrupt the Routine podcast. Introduce yourself. Ah, uh, you go first normally. Really? What? The, one time. <laughs> what, why don't you go first this week? Go on, you go. I'll you go, go first. With your hosts, Selena Lammy and Robert Blackwood. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for all the lovely feedback from last week. We had a blast putting it together, and we've got a really exciting podcast for you this week. There's, I'm building that up, aren't I, really? But you, you are. You, you're excited, aren't you? Yeah, I'm very excited, always. And if you were to do the opposite, that would be a little strange. This week's podcast... It's really dull. dull. <laughs> Just stop now. So yeah, so yeah switch it off. Don't yes. interrupt your routine. Go back to your routine. There's safety in the routine. It feels, it feels slightly relentless this week. I think last year was very much the year of, of Zoom and that sort of level of platform, webinar platform. And this year, there's a, a real sort of cornucopia of different platforms coming on. And there's one with lots of bells and whistles that we are using for our Harry Potter house cup quiz. That's exciting. The dressing of the rooms. Harry Potter is a world I've grown to love. We originally started looking for quizzes that people would respond to in order to create content and engage with people. And Harry Potter seems to be the one that lots of people are super into. And it's quite fascinating because I went into it as someone who liked Harry Potter. I did. I appreciated it. The stories I have watched them, uh, you know, from time to time since. And then suddenly you're in this world where pe- people really like they are absolutely on point with everything, all yeah. the knowledge, and they've got questions about it, and mm-hmm. it relates to humanity. Mm-hmm. And there are sort of wider questions about how people feel about themselves and identity and, and suffering and challenges of life. It's quite beguiling. People are so lovely about it. They're really into it. It's a real, it's a real hobby. Yeah. So I, I absolutely agree. And I've spent, I've spent, as you know, a little time dabbling in that Harry Potter Facebook group that you created. And I'm, I love Harry Potter. I've read all the books. I've seen all the films. My kids have been through them. And I'm astonished by the depth of people's detailed knowledge in that group. In fact, we had last week, I think, quite an engaged debate about whether or not it was important that Hedwig died as Mm. part of a particular part of Harry Potter. I felt quite strongly about that, unlike most other issues, which I'm kind of curious and happy to to watch other people debate, but I felt quite strongly about Hedwig. But there was a great big discussion, really interesting discussion about why it was important. You know, was there an alternative and people really disagreed and they're so very analytical about it. Mm. In the way that, you know, when I studied literature at university, you know, you interpret books and you learn, but really what you're learning is somebody else's interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really just people's opinion that they formed over years from really knowing these these films. So I think um I think that, that a quiz on all of, on that sort of level of detail will be super cool. I have a question. How does somebody get sorted? If they want if they if they hear you talking about that and they want to get sorted into the house, how do they do that? So the the, the very simple answer is that you go to somewhere called Pottermore. There are different ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think the one that certainly I went to was Pottermore and you can can get sorted. But but there are also a lot of people who get sorted who don't like what they're sorted into. <laughs> and so they therefore claim that they are 
something else. Which, to be honest, who who cares? I don't care. I, I, I don't really. So no, then, and I'm hearing myself say, I don't care. And what I'm thinking in my head is, I would have to be Gryffindor. So we we've got the sort of, we've got the four houses. Mm-hmm. You buy your ticket, and you then represent that house and also yourself. So you will quiz from that room, mm-hmm. and you can talk together, you can talk as you go along, or you can do it individually. So there is an individual prize every week, and there are also there's the house cup. So all of the points that everyone in that house gets are accrued and aggregated as we go through. And then the house with the most points at the end wins the house cup. So you've got two different ways of sort of interacting. You've got the the ability to shine as the individual and then mm-hmm. to work as a team. And I think that that speaks to people's want of community. And the prizes are good. There was a release of the house versions of uh, Half-Blood Prince. We're going to give a hardback version with a hoodie yeah. and enjoy that. Yeah, no, for sure. <clears throat> Everybody loves a bit of birch. Every, did you say everybody loves a bit of birch? I meant... Are you a flagellant? I meant to say birch. <laughs> I said birch instead. No, no. <laughs> I'm glad I said that again. <laughs> everybody loves a bit of merch, Rob. And how they? would your grandmother say that? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've established that my grandmother just sounds very much like me. Do you know, I'm not bad at accents. But I don't think I can do my grandmother. And I don't want to do her disservice because I loved her. Do it and if you answer just no, Rob, it's gonna be very disappointing and it's gonna be but it will be a short conversation. So there are you know, okay. thank heavens for small mercies. Um <laughs> do you ever do impressions of either people in your household or people that are close to you that are sincerely completely unlike how they sound, but they give you pleasure? For example, when I do it, I, when I do an impression of my wife to my wife, it will be, "Oh, Jim didn't know this. What are you up to?" Uh, we get I get the children to do impressions of us all the time to to check in and see how they the general gist is is absolutely hilarious. So, do you have this in your household? We, we do, uh, and it can be the source of some uh, discord. So, <laughs> in our house. I have I have two boys and one of them is 15. So his voice has broken within the last year. It's gone quite deep. It used to be very squeaky. And so sometimes when he's talking, it sounds like he's just saying, no, I mean, I just don't. <laughs> kind of deep. That was a terrible impression. But that is what I do. So if he says something I don't like, I'll sometimes play it back to him like that. It's an outrageous thing to do because if he does it to me, I find it really irritating. <laughs> but I just, it's out before I can stop it. No. No. So <laughs> no. 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 So, in short, there is a bit of imitation of people that goes on in our house and it generally doesn't go very well. I'm so curious we... to know whether you actually did marry the granny from the Catherine Tate sketches or whether that's just... Ow. Uh, no. I think there's a little bit of... Uh, of Monty Python in there as well, because I do like to think. So this is uh, this is the ego in me likes to think that I am quite good at um, doing Brian's mother from the life of Brian. Yeah, that's not ego. That's just a fact. We're okay. Own your brilliance, Rob. Sorry. It's fine. I set them up. <laughs> <laughs> you knock them down. Thank you very much. <laughs> I do like it, but what's happened is 
because we um, we're quite playful with each other's identities in, in this in this house, my youngest uh, might well crawl up the stairs and claim really badly that she's someone else in the house and do it in such an entertaining way because she's smiling the whole time. It's so delightful that it makes it work. That's something that's very particular to children, isn't it? The ability to to sell that kind of joy mm-hmm. and to make it winning. And yeah. I, I, I really I love that. And I think you've given your household an enormous gift in the sense that they are so comfortable in dipping in and out of different things, even though they aren't perfect. I think that's such a gift, such a gift. In fact, after we talked about your children in acting different bedtime characters um, I had a conversation with my eldest and said I feel like I've just missed what would have been a really good thing to do is it too late he said it was he said he's 18 and he doesn't really want to do that anymore (laughs) Selena I've got a question um do you think it would help if all men at some point in their education were forced to spend an evening in high heels? Um, well, it might help with some things. Uh, I'm conscious that in some places there's an expectation that women should wear very high heels or any high heels. And so maybe it would help with that. I would rather the effort went into removing of any sort of expectation that women should wear footwear that they don't want to wear or that they don't feel comfortable in the lesson is not don't expect women to wear high heels because they're not comfortable it's don't expect women to wear anything other than what they want to wear we have uh, we have a guest and um, i'm quite excited and a little trepidatious about this yes i agree yeah because this is is there's also the potential with this interview to feel very um <laughs> what have i done with, what have i been doing with my life <laughs> yeah yeah he's done so much huh? this guest yes barrett barrett sorolia mm-hmm. um and in terms of because one of the things we're going to talk about is um the green revolution and the evolution towards trying to get the planet back to where it to some sort of state of of balance mm-hmm. how do you feel you're doing if you don't mind me asking i don't mind i don't know that i do enough the small things that we can do in the house i'm pretty good at we're pretty conscious about things like sustainable loo paper and i try and go for packaging that doesn't have plastic and all of those things and if i'm really honest it just doesn't feel like enough there's so mm. i feel like the gap between where we are and where we need to be is so wide I don't know that I do enough. Mm. How about you? Same. I, do, I talk a good game. To say it's hard in a pandemic, it's ignoring the fact that it's about changing habits, isn't it? Yes. And that's the bigger challenge. You can still do all of the things that you want to do. And yet I know that on a Thursday, I still put out far too much recycling. Yeah. Far too much plastics. I agree. And I think there's something about the recycling, the business of recycling. Um, people justify buying something which is which uses a lot of packaging and is quite single use by saying it can be recycled. Yeah. And I kind of think we're beyond that. Like that's we've had that. Actually, mm. we want to be not using it in the first place. So we don't want huge, great, you know, boxes of stuff that even though we can recycle the packaging, better off to find the one that doesn't have it 
in the first doesn't have the packaging in the first place so you know yeah. so go to go and go and get it I, so i loved you know i really love at the shops where you can go along with your bags and fill up with nuts and raisins and rice and flour and those kinds of things and i wish there were more of them i think actually i if i lived near a shop like that if i didn't have to get in a car and drive to one of those shops which feels like it undoes the good that is the kind of shop I would like to be shopping in. I don't want to be unpackaging stuff from, you know, a, a cardboard tray and a plastic wrapper, um, yeah. which has literally transported it from their lorry to their shop, to my house, to my bin. I don't, I, that's what I want next is to try and really cut back on the packaging. And when you buy glass jars of stuff as well, you, you feel good. But unfortunately, what you don't see or you do if you look up at the top top shelves in supermarkets is you don't see that they come in boxes of 12 wrapped in plastic. Yeah. And I do feel that, you know, this is a this is a society that seems to have big business and government that is very reactive rather than it doesn't doesn't do things because they are necessarily good. It does things because people tell it that it's no longer acceptable. In that sense, it's quite disappointing that, you know, supermarkets in general aren't doing more. They they do some, but it's still everywhere. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And actually, do you know what I feel part of me feels really, actually quite a big part of me, probably all of me, feels that actually we just all of us need to take a bit of responsibility for ourselves now. You know, we need to not wait to be told. We don't need to wait for there to be a plastic bag ban. I signed up for a sustainable loo roll delivery service. So it all comes in. Um, there's no plastic in the plastic and packaging at all. There's no plastic in the loo paper. And it's made from uh, recyclable, sustainable wood. Um, I think I know. The, what's the company? It's called, is it Who Gives a Crap? I think it's Who Gives a Crap. Yes, I've heard about these guys. Yeah, and it, we've just had our first delivery uh, yesterday, I think. So there's a lot of there's a lot of it, but I just thought I don't need a plastic bag full of loo rolls, and I probably yeah. should have made that decision three years ago, like everybody else. Uh, so uh, that's I, my I and that's on me. I've got to I've got to do that. I've mm. seen that. I will do it now as well. Okay, I may have a voucher. They may have sent me a you know sign send up somebody. Is it else is it sort of is it drastically more expensive or? I don't think it is. So there are two kinds. One is um, made of recycled uh, goods, materials, and the other one is uh, made of bamboo. Now, I happen to live in a house with a man who is particularly fussy about the quality of the paper. So I've gone for the bamboo one, which is a little bit more expensive. But when I looked originally, I think it was something like 20p more per roll. And for me, that that's manageable. I can do that. And I know not everybody can. So so it's not that everyone must sign up and there are probably others, but I just really like it. Um, dishwasher detergent is all plastic free and delivered every month through the door. So there's no plastic in any of the packaging. It's all cardboard and recyclable. That's interesting. Is it that do you use the eco ecova stuff or is it? OK, so what what is the laundry detergent, etc.? Where do you get that from? I use a company called Small, S-M-O-L, and okay. you can sign up for a regular delivery and you choose how much you need. It will tell you, you know, with the laundry detergent, it'll ask how many times you use the machine and they estimate it. And it just comes through the door and they're little pods like like any other pod for any other brand you'd use. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no 
plastic packaging around them and there's you know literally you're left with a cardboard box and you can recycle them and the softener fabric softener comes in a in a plastic bottle but you send the plastic bottles back and they get reused they give you a box to send them back in so i feel like gradually i'm moving over i'm very kinds of services um and and then they are a little more expensive but not not wildly it smells yummy so it's really nice to welcome barrett sorolia barrett hi Thank you very much for allowing me to uh, come on the show. I, it's, it's a great honor, Robert, Selena, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, speaking my mind, as it were. Can we start with just asking you a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Bolton? You, that, that, that's where you were born? Is that, am I right in saying that? That's right. Yes, I was born in Bolton. Um, to answer your question, I think it was a bit of good and a bit of bad. Uh, I was born in there in 1967, so I am an oldie compared to some of your listeners, and always will be. The North was a completely different area uh, arena at that time. It was more like Game of Thrones, um, and there were the fact, fractious is, issues that we have now uh, in terms of race um, and inequality and what have you were very much front and center when I was, uh, you know, growing up because my parents had immigrated or emigrated into the UK in 1964 to work in the factories. So I come from a very solidly working class labor background. And growing up was, um, I enjoyed the actual, I enjoyed the North. I enjoyed the actual, the down to earth commonality of poverty for nearly everybody. But at the same time, I didn't really enjoy the overt racist and having to defend yourself both physically and cognitively on a daily basis. That was what my take from that particular uh, area was. I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school and that exposed me to a different network of people. Uh, it also exposed me to a different level of prejudice as well, uh, which wasn't overt, it was more subliminal. At that time, I didn't have the vocabulary, I didn't have the understanding of what all those things meant, but it was there and um, in, in a way, I couldn't wait to get out. I, I got out of Bolton when I was 27 to come to London. But at the same time, my family, my, my, my only brother lives there. So it is almost a love-hate relationship. In terms of your education, you going to a grammar school, did that come from your, your own ambitions? Was it facilitated by the school itself who saw something in you? Was it your parents that wanted this for you? How did that sort of that progress happen? Because you... you sort of it's just written down here that you just happen to have 13 a levels and 5a levels which is, <laughs> you know just, you know yeah it's, it's, it's embarrassing for the rest of us but yeah uh, well it, 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 that's great but it all depends on what you do afterwards uh, you know if you go into further education or higher education if you do um it was it was a mixture of two uh, my my father we worked in factories all his life um, but he was very intelligent, so was my mother, and they basically drummed it into me that education is one way out of the situation that we find ourselves in, in the North. Um, being Hindu, you know, we, we come from a decent family in the sense that, you know, we had lands and what have you in, in, in India. We had a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle over there, but uh, there was a family issue. He came here on his own and then built everything from scratch. But education was drummed into me that it was the one way out. And uh, initially, my uh, career path, I agreed with my father, was to be a solicitor, to go into the legal field. Uh, but then after he passed away, I decided to follow another passion, which was media. 
going into a grammar school was both um, very effective for me in terms of my um, education and cognitive development, which it was, which it was. It actually brought me to a different level of understanding. It taught me how to learn. It taught me how to actually inquire on my own. Uh, I, I always had this rebellious streak, and that was brought out in grammar school because we were taught actually how to challenge taught to challenge the text we were reading, whether it should be Shakespeare or poetry or what have you, or novels, we are, or even science. We were actually taught the scientific method. We were taught to actually not just take a teacher's answer for the truth. But in terms of the acquisition of critical thinking, yes, do you feel that that is um, manifested in the, edu- in the state education system as a whole? Or are we sort of having leaders in one section and followers in another section, which is a common argument? Where, where do you stand on that? Okay, um, I, I think I, I appreciate that as a common argument, but that's not not the way I see it. Uh, I do believe that education was more rigorous, it was more mental, more cognitive, because we did have very little access to technology that we have now. We've outsourced a lot of our thinking to our smartphones, our computers, our searches. At that time, when we had to do a project, and this was whether it was state or grammar or even private school, you still had to go to you know, the library. You still had to actually do your own research. And that in itself, by doing your own research, actually created within you the skill set of critical thinking, of cognitive ability, of analyzing pieces of information. It's not that it's lacking now, but unfortunately, most of it's outsourced. And what by outsourcing that piece, you know, those pieces of cognitive um, skill sets and architecture, what we're hoping to have now is that we will use our cognitive abilities to actually do more pure thinking. The problem is, is that the state schools or schools in general nowadays have abdicated that role of, okay, we've now got this great resource called search engines and um, artificial intelligence, robotics architecture, whatever you want to call it, we can use that as a research mechanism, as a research machinery, but we still have to actually ask the questions to actually engage in that research, engage in that innovation, to use those tools. And I feel that what we're lacking now across all the different aspects of education, state, uh, grammar, or uh, private is that we've lost the art of asking questions. And the to answer the question of people are thinking, uh, it's a very simplistic view in my point, is that there are people who are streamed to go to the Eatons of the world, the private schools of the world, and they will become the leaders. And then the others are the consumers of the world, and we're just going to be the, be the middle managers or the actual workers or what have you. I think that's a very simplistic 20th century argument. It's not what the reality is now. Mm. Uh, and in terms of the, that reality how, in your eyes, does education need to to facilitate that reality and uh, cope with the the new parameters of what you're saying? I'm gonna I'm gonna take something from um, the original the the initial podcast that you did, uh, you know, with Selena and Selena's five top tips. Uh, mental health is so important from a kindergarten level to, you know, to where we are now, to, to old age, as it were, is that everyday mental hygiene is as crucial or even more crucial than physical hygiene. The reason I bring that into education is that in all education across, uh, even up to, you know, postgraduate and PhD levels of education, a lot of the time we're not actually thought to apply 
what we're learning to the real world. What does it mean, all these facts and figures that we're actually being told about? How do we connect them? And I believe that um, education can benefit from, you need to be able to link different pieces of information, which is now taught in silos, to then have the creative ability to react to real world problems. Whether you're a five-year-old, or whether you are 22 and just coming out of a master's degree, you need to be able to do that. The issue that we have is that we are being taught in silos and those silos don't talk to each other. And so we may know everything about geography or physics or even computer science, but when we come out into the real world, the real world is a, a tapestry of different elements of different sections of uh, learning and it all comes to us at once and we are not able to handle it critically we're not we don't have the actual critical skill set to basically take a step back and think wow okay i need to bring this part of my knowledge that i learned when i was at secondary school this part of my knowledge when i was a sports person what have you to be able to handle these challenges as they come up that's so interesting that you're right we do teach in silos and it doesn't equip people for a sort of practical application sort of problem solving what can we do to change that so that people can access different bits of it more easily i, I think that um the the kindergarten to kind of 11 year old which is what the, the usual streams that we have there there is a case to be said that um we can teach through storytelling i think the uh, a lot of cognitive skills can be taught you know the, the foundation for those cognitive skills can be taught there but when we get to 11 when the actual neurons are fixed to a certain extent i mean the brain is always collapsing and creating and pruning and what have you its neuron system but when we actually get to 11 this is the time where we actually have to bring in real world application to the knowledge that we are being taught we are moving at such a pace um, there is a, such a convergence between technology uh, and all the other sciences and social sciences and humanities, um, we are almost, our brains are not able to keep up with the actual technology we're using. So what needs to be taught, um, for my example, if I was designing a curriculum, is you know pure knowledge, um, and then how to relate that knowledge to uh, pure technology, which is the civilization we live in now. And at the same time, to actually bring in a layer of, cognitive stillness, as I call it. It's not, it's not um, um, meaning uh, wellness or it's not meditation, but it's the ability to actually take a step back and just say, okay, does this actually make sense to me? And then create an environment where pupils are almost challenged to challenge what they're learning. Mm. And to be able to ask, is this right? Or is there another way that this can be explained? Or ask them, okay, I want you to learn about you know, geography, latitude and longitude, go, go and do some work, you know, but don't use your um, Google or don't go into the library or go or use Google, but come up with an alternative theory. What were the theories before uh, longitude and latitude? What were the issues around there? And by doing that, people are more engaged. It's interactive learning. And through interactive learning, I feel that, uh, you know, the, uh, the brain learns quicker. People get more, I wouldn't say intelligent, but more creative. And it's creativity mixed with technology and knowledge, which will enable people from 11 to 18 to 19 to be able to actually tackle some of the challenges that we are facing now and which are coming on the horizon. Selena and I both have children of different ages. Is there, in terms of parenting, 
what should we be doing to enable this to, to happen? How should we be approaching this? Because I, I, I guess I'm very lucky as I grew up in an environment where there were answers to questions and teachers were p- teachers had a, a sense of wholeness about how they were going to approach a, a, an academic year. Whereas what you're saying is that things are moving so quickly that there are questions. It's more about equipping children, everybody, to be able to ask different questions and not necessarily knowing what those answers may be. What can what can we do as as parents and uh, and just as as people? Um, I'm not a parent myself, so I'm going to have to give give you more of an abstract answer or more of an answer that I've actually advised cousins of mine who uh, have children. And, and they've asked me similar questions. And I always say to them, uh, you know, you've been a child yourself. Um, you will have come across the 80% of the questions that your children are going to come up with uh, are going to be questions that you've had to come up with answers to and you found answers to. So that's, you know, the other 20% is basically technology driven uh, and horizon driven in terms of what's happening in the real world. One thing I would say is don't shy away from the real world but actually be able to not sanitize it, but bring it down to the level of the children's um, age and education or knowledge base and basically say, we have a, you know, use a case study, you know, tomorrow we're going out shopping. Um, We're going to go shopping. We usually do it this way. Do you think we can have a more efficient way of doing it? Now that may seem really simplistic, but you give that problem to an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, or even a six-year-old. And instead of, they'll say, well, instead of going down that aisle and then coming back up and what have you, you may be able to work with them. And it's very simplistic. I appreciate some of your listeners will be thinking, what is he talking about? It is very simplistic, but you look at the actual cognitive skills that will be developed by just looking at a shopping expedition and to see how can you make it more efficient and more fun. That's great. I love that. And as you're, as you're talking about, um, the, the business of the tech of technology kind of robbing us of the opportunity for doing our own research if you like those weren't the words yes. you used but um it, it makes me realize that there's there's no gaps in my children are older they're 14 and 18 and so what i realized that for them is there's never a gap between wondering about something and having the answer and i wonder what what creativity is lost because nobody they don't sit and we as well don't sit in that place of wondering for very long because somebody whips out their phone and we have the answer and then the conversation goes on but that's where you know they say was it necessity is the mother of all invention or something like Absolutely. that Absolutely. And, and I feel like that that gap is where that necessity sits and if you don't have that I don't know if we lost a lot of creativity because of that do you think? I think that the the world's R&D um, issues now is people are pumping in billions to actually create courses on innovation and creativity because we've ha- we have lost it because the world's information as google when it first started off yeah uh, you know when there was two of them to us to actually categorize the world's information to, to a point we've got there the issue that i have is the searches that are coming up are all curated they're not the real truth they're not the, exactly what you're looking for it's exactly what they think you should be looking for so that creates a conceptual and you know cognitive bubble there, knowledge bubble. Um, my attitude to any, so I mean, I'd have to do a lot of searches because of the work that I do. I basically look at that and think, okay, that is what they're giving me. What is the alternative? What is the actual counter argument to this? Even though it may lead into woo-woo, conspiracy theory, what have you, I need to actually counter that. And then I look at all the accessible pieces of information, both counter and what 
you know, the search engine has brought up to me, then that's where my creativity comes in. Because I think creativity is now moved to analyzing of information and actually coming up to what makes sense to you at that moment in time and within the time frame that you've been given. Sometimes you may only have, you know, if you're on a quiz, which Rob is a, you know, master of, you only have 30 seconds. And so whatever search comes up, you're thinking, yeah, that sounds right. I'm going to put it in, even though they're not supposed to use their uh, equipment, uh, Rob. But I think that creativity is now shifted to um, analyzing a lot of the information you are getting and then comparing and contrasting with information that you already have. And then seeing what spark, you know, sparks up. Juxtaposition of information is going to be a new, new science, a new knowledge base. It goes back to Sergei Eisenstein, the father of modern editing for film, where he basically put two images together to get a new idea. Um, that and he got that from uh, Japanese kanji, where they actually have two different characters and you put them together, and it becomes a different phrase completely from the original two characters. What I'm saying is that we are now moving into a world where the people who are going to be more most effective to be able to adapt to the changing conditions are the ones who are going to be able to take information that is instant and then analyze it and juxtaposition it with other pieces of information to come up with new answers. And that is where the creativity is now going to happen, the majority of it. There's something that comes from the erudition of what you're, what you're covering, your love of science fiction, the idea of placing yourself in the imagination, the creativity. Do you feel that from your childhood, this escapism that clearly comes through in what you've written, what you've produced and where your your passions lie, is that something that's common in your life? It has been common since I was a child. It has been common since I was a child. And the actual um, triggering incident to use today's vernacular was when my family moved to Leicester and they'd bought a small shop and I had to go schooling about six miles away from Leicester to a small small town on the periphery of Leicester called Oldby, 10 years old. But I just couldn't make any friends. I, I literally, it was the most horrible seven years of my childhood, you know, even counting the issues that I had in Bolton with race and what have you, because there's nothing worse for a child uh, to be, than to be ignored and to, uh, to be ostracized, even if it was never meant to be that. You know, it, even small things like um, standing around um, at um, playtime and break time at lunchtime, um, because one, nobody would talk to you and nobody would let you play football with them and what have you. Even simple things like that, which now with the hindsight of being older, you think, well, it's a bit silly, but never mind. But it has a major influence uh, when you're developing. And since then, I, I, I remembered that at times. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to rely on other people for my own entertainment. I'm not going to rely on other people uh, to be accepted, to be validated. So I just went into a world of genre, science fiction, supernatural, you know, M.R. James, horror, science, Stephen King, and all the great science fiction greats. And I just went into that. And, I, and from science fiction, I had, um, you know, affinity with technology uh, and the arts as well. Uh, I was very lucky because of the education that I had at the grammar school that we were, we were given both uh, arts and sciences uh, and classics. I was lucky to actually have you know, Latin and classics as an education uh, stream as well. But I put that all together. But as I grew older and as I you know, went into adulthood, I was always I always held myself outside of the actual Hindu uh, community. 
but I also held myself outside of the, you know, what I call the mainstream, um, the English indigenous communities as well. And the, the jobs that I've chosen since then, um, once I worked on the council for the council tax, but I worked on the counter. So I was in, in, dealing with inquiries eight hours a day, uh, which enabled my communication skills to take a quantum leap because you're dealing with people who are very uh, upset and in, in many cases, rightly so, uh, uh, irate. And you have to build rapport within, within an instant. So I, I realized that was the foundation of me moving into the private sector, which I eventually do as a recruitment consultant. And again, you're talking to people from many different aspects of, you know, different areas of life, different religions, different races, different genders, different sexual orientations. And you have to actually be able to adapt very quickly and try to either find a solution for them or try to build a bridge for them. And because of that, I think I have now come to the point where I have a very few close friends, but I also find that for me to actually establish those friendships and keep those friendships going, I do need long periods of time away from people where I do my research, where I do my reading. So when I do come back to those relationships, um, I have something to say. You know, it's, it's not, uh, how are you doing? Oh, this is exactly the same as yesterday. I want to be able to make an impact both personally and professionally. And the way to do that is to taking long, long stretches away from people and society so I can, you know, develop myself. What would your advice be to people who are applying for jobs in how they go about um, familiarizing themselves with what they're applying for. Should it be the numbers game? How do you see employment opportunities as being approached by the young? I would take a portfolio approach. I was very um, binary before in my approach, which is it is a numbers game, but also it is a game of quality, but you can't get to the quality without actually going through the numbers game. That over the last two or three years, with the deep dive of technology that I've been doing, especially algorithms using keyword searches, key phrase searches that will actually go through people's CVs and are only programmed to look at certain phrases and certain words. And if they're not in the right order, then you are put into a separate file. What happens on a lot of these job engines, uh, search engines, uh, job boards, and a lot of these people will disagree uh, because they don't want to reveal the secret sauce, is that the reason why they are set up in such a way and they, they can handle such a volume is be behind that particular opening interface where you put your CV up or your resume up. And, and then, you know, you've applied for a particular job. In between the actual job and you putting that resume up, there is a layer of intelligence, which is usually keyword or basically phrases. And, and it basically just scans your CV within seconds literally milliseconds, and then it will allow that to be shifted into another pile for hopefully a human being to look through that. What you've got to realize, and I've been a recruiter for 15, 20 years, is that um, when you put a job advert out, you will the, the very next day, you will probably have 80 particular submissions. You're probably working on six to eight particular jobs at any one time. So you can imagine the amount of time it takes you to go through, or you're allowed to go through each of those submissions. And these have been filtered, hopefully, by a job board or by a, a program before they've even reached you. Once you've done that, you literally have 20 seconds to quickly read through and say, is this person somebody I need to actually speak to? Are they going to actually get me the actual uh, fee? And that's what it's about. This is, you know, recruitment people are not job centers. And this is what people really need to understand. For the young people nowadays, I would say do the research on, I always say to people, whether they're young or old, what I think they need to do is do a list of the top 10, top 100, top 50, the companies that they want to work for. 
go onto the Wikipedia pages, go onto the actual uh, pages of the companies themselves. A lot of these companies have a lot of good information there. Read the company reports if you can, depending on the level. If you're a CFO, you're going to have to read a lot of information to actually make sure, is this a good fit, both commercially and more importantly, value-based. For young people, it is about what is your situation economically? What is your situation going forward? What are your passions? You've got to put all this into perspective. And that's why I say a portfolio approach is go after the actual job boards. Don't you know, ignore them. You know That is a numbers game. But at the same time, you need to spend at least one or two hours um, every day researching companies or areas of interest that you'd like to work in. A lot of people want to work in tech because they think they can be tech billionaires. But there's a lot of hard work before you can actually IPO a company. But there are enough pieces of information out there which will take you from being a non-coder to being a CEO of a tech technology company. It may take five years, but the issue is that you have to do your own research. But bear in mind that you have to also take practical commercial considerations. You, you have to understand what is your level of flexibility when it comes to money do you have enough money to survive on if you don't then get a job don't be proud of it get a job which fits in with what you want to do make sure you have enough income to give you the actual space the freedom to think and then from that thinking that even if it's a couple of hours a night you can think okay i've got a couple of hours a night i can actually now build you know and i'm gonna have to do this based on cash flow projection gonna have to do this for another six months but that six months I can use really well and I can then build my career from there. In that sense, do you think that there is a, a responsibility or an opportunity for government to buy that time for people, whatever age they are, in order to allow people to, to make that shift? Okay, let, let me broaden that um, particular um, question of yours. World Economic Forum two years ago released a report that said that Within by, by 2025, and this was without the pandemic, 75 million people around the world, this is the middle classes of the Western world, will be unemployed or under, you know, underemployed due to automation. They encourage governments, uh, again, mainly in the Western Europe uh, and the US, to uh, and obviously including Japan, to increase their investment into learning and development and training, not leave it to the private sector, work in conjunction with the private sector, because a lot of government-led schemes are usually ideological, you know, right or left, and they don't really work. They, they've never really worked. But there is something to be said about not giving it completely to the private sector, because it is completely about, you know, the bottom line. There is a fine line between more private sector involvement, which, you know, turns it into a just turns into a profit machine and more public sector uh, involvement, which basically is more ideologically driven and actually results in a lot of slowness. The issue is that the automation and the challenges of the environment, especially even though that's not uh, technology, will force our hand. So the government has to come in, but it has to come in strategically. But before it can do so, it, it, it itself, the government ministers, the government, I mean, I work with my local MP in uh, Harrow in uh, northwest London where I live. They need to be trained and briefed about the actual systematic risks that are going to happen. And it goes beyond ideology. If the British government were asked to do this, I would say there has to be a cross-party, complete government solution. Everybody has to buy into it and say, for a couple of years, let's just put uh, education out of ideology 
let's actually look at how we can support the masses of unemployment and underemployment that's going to happen in the next four years. And not, and not just because of COVID. You know, there are firms that will be using COVID as an excuse to automate a lot of their process. And, and that's not just happening within what we would tr traditionally call the working class. That is happening amongst law firms. That is happening amongst accountancy firms. It is happening across what we would now call the middle class as well. Selena and I would both like to understand um, your take on how we are doing with the planet. You know, certainly at the beginning of the year, we had David Attenborough kindly, benevolently telling us once a week that we're all screwed unless we do something. Where do you feel the planet is at? What do you feel is being done and what can we do? Sure, sure. Uh, is, is this going to be one of those... 30, 30 words or less, yeah, two minutes, two minutes, 30 <laughs> words or less, you know, give me a pitch, give me a pitch what you can do. Okay, let me take it back uh, a minute or so to how I came to where I am at this moment in time. So before the pandemic started, I was in a very good situation where I was working for a professional services firm and I was looking at single single company investments and raising capital for those investments. And I had a tangential career, tangential career on the media and looking at writing narratives and films and what have you. During the pandemic, I read more and more about uh, the climate emergency, the cold climate reset, the issues with the Antarctic, especially the Antarctic ice cap. And I read a very, very scary report, which was that if the polar ice caps, especially Antarctica, melted, you know, you can kiss goodbye to New York, London, Shanghai, any coastal city around the planet. Venice would just be submerged. And that's not a hundred years timeline. That is literally 10 to 15 to 20 years timeline. So I did a deep dive into different areas of climate um, you know, change. And then that led to uh, what I call the wider impact expect, um, perspective, which is global inequality, which a lot of it is due to climate issues. A lot of it is due to the history of European nations going around the world, setting up their empires and the empires collapsing after World War II and the actual cascade effect of that. And a lot of things are all weaved into one, which is now we're facing this sixth, you know, sixth level extinctional event which is coming along the way. It's not stopping. Now, I was talking to a um, gentleman from Hollywood just that I will not name his name. He is an actor. And he said a very interesting thing. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. Uh, he said a very interesting thing. He goes, the planet doesn't need to be saved. The planet doesn't really care about us. We need to save ourselves from ourselves. We need to change our relationship with the planet. The planet will go on whether we're here or not. This is a human problem, which is put onto a planetary context. We need to actually change ourselves and our behaviors. Two years ago, I felt that um, the climate had already tipped and all we could do was climate adaptation. Now uh, I work as the head of investments for a global uh, climate impact organization called Top Tier Impact, led by uh, probably one of the most in, you know, inspiring and influential people I've met, and that's why I joined with her, a lady called Alessandra Solberger, in her kind of early 30s, mid 30s, but very tuned in. She knows exactly what is happening, what, where are we going? And she's assembled a kind of core group of us, about 550 professionals, investors, climate professionals, who are dedicated to one thing, which is basically saving humanity from itself and by extension, saving the planet. Where we are now, we are in the last stages of the beginnings of an extinction level event. Mass migration, uh, 
look at the 49th parallel, which is basically the divider between the US and Canada. Anything below that, you're going to have major problems of living. Even in the United States, the southern states are going to be unhabitable within 10 years. It's going to be too warm. And what's going to happen is that the people with money, the people who have the means, will then gravitate towards the north. The people who don't will be staying there, and you will have... If you think the Mediterranean crisis over the last three years was bad, where people, refugees, were trying to get to mainland Europe, that's nothing compared to what is going to happen. And we're looking at around the world. We are facing a plethora of events. Now, we are approaching it from what I call a very top-down Eurocentric, American-centric point of view. The issue is narrative. The narrative is still not strong enough. And when you're talking about what can we do, uh, I'm talking on a macro level, the narrative is still not strong enough. People still believe that they can have the still same life that we're having now, you know, 20, 21st century, early 21st century, Western European, American lifestyles, and still save the planet. It's not going to happen. We're going to have to make some fundamental changes, both on a micro level and a macro level. Uh, and that's going to make some hard choices in the way we ourselves live our lives. Uh, and more importantly, the narrative has to change where it is personal for everybody, because it's, as I said to an investor a couple of weeks back, I said, listen, the reason I need you to put money into this firm that is looking at uh, ocean conservation and ocean plastic cleanup is because if the ocean food chain collapses, which it will do if we carry on the way we're doing, then basically we're going to have mass famine events, but not in Africa. It's going to happen in Europe. It literally is going to, because the food chain collapses, everything else collapses on top of it. There's cascade events will happen. So if you want your grandchildren to actually wear hazmat suits so they can go out inside and play in the actual intolerable sun, then, you know, don't invest in this. Don't even look at this. But if you don't want that to happen, then you need to look at it. The work that I do, I mean, we, we you know, we are very grandiose. But we're the actual, you know, the CFOs of the Green Revolution. My job is to actually finance the Green Revolution and make sure that the money is allocated. And this is where the actual crux of the matter is. What we can do now is global investors. There's trillions of dollars flowing around the global economy. That money needs to be allocated more and more to people and to funds and for profit, by the way, funds that will innovate new technologies that will actually help us to adapt to the certain parts of climate that have already changed, but then reset other parts that we can actually still control. When we set up this podcast, we also, we came to it, or better say we came at it with uh, good intentions, mm. but also not quite knowing how it was going to, to pan out. And it's really interesting, this podcast and possibly every single podcast is is really going to be shaped by the guest and how articulate and how comfortable they are with speaking your truth. I suppose we, what we've got to do is make sure that in the, the breakdown of the podcast, we, we make sure that people don't expect to laugh a minute as yes. more sort of a laugh a, a, an hour. But this is really, really vital. We have to look differently at this. One of the things we're asking our guests is to come up with five top tips. Okay. Yeah. And we are sort of looking forward with excitement and trepidation <laughs> to what yours will be so okay, if i sure. hand it over to you brilliant that's very kind of you thank you rob and thank you selena for allowing me to uh, as you say speak my truth so my five tips are all about something that i've been developing um over the last couple of years actually because i got to a point in, point in my life where uh, my health wasn't very good anti-fragile is a concept uh, originally created by a philosopher author financer nicholas uh, you know nazim nicholas taleb 
who wrote a book called Black Swan. Basically, to be anti-fragile is to be able to take anything that life throws at you and to come out stronger. Taleb's original concept was for systems and for companies and for countries. I've adapted it, and other people on the internet have adapted it as well, to a personal manifesto of how to live in a world that is constantly changing, and it will never stop for you. You know, you're going to have to actually have to change with the world. Point one is mental and physical. You both have to look after your mind, which is through either meditation or wellness or mindfulness, because there have been many, many studies now that saying that even five minutes of stillness will give you two or three hours of cognitive ability to handle whatever you're handling at that moment in time. And it's a cumulative effect. And you will find it after a couple of weeks, you'll find yourself being able to deal with things a lot better. Part two of point one is you need to look after your physicality and you move to, one of the ways to do that is to move to a plant-based food diet, a majority plant-based food diet. Don't cut out all meat and fish if you don't want to, but you know, two things, one is plant protein and fish protein. The way agriculture is now has too many toxins in it and the accumulation of those toxins can lead to what people are calling, and this is a high carbohydrate load as well, can lead to what people are calling diabetes type three, which is Alzheimer's. So there's a lot of research on that. I will put some notes together, send them to uh, Rob, and you can go through the books and research that look like. Point two is you need to become a constant learning organism. You know, and this is the core of anti-fragility, is that the most successful organisms on the planet are the ones that can adapt quicker uh, to the environment. Humans have created education as that bridge and a platform for adaptation. So no matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, you have the internet, you can learn anything you want to. And by learning, you are giving yourself an insurance against the actual constant changes that you're going to face. Number three, climate change. I would basically go down to controlling your own personal climate. You don't have to go on marches. Just look at yourself and say, how can I personally make a difference? Because if you make a difference and everybody else around you make a difference, the cumulative effect, the compound effect, you'll start seeing major changes both in communities and then in the nation states and in blocks and what have you. But it has to start from with yourself. Number four, do not waste three things, food, time, and money. Food today, 8.4 million UK citizens will, you know, will have food insecurity. But every year, we throw away as a population enough food to actually feed all of us. And so nobody has food insecurity. So please do not waste food. Point two of that is do not waste time. If you just spend one hour less or two hours less on social media or media itself, and you take some online classes Within a year, you will have upgraded your education, your learning ability, and more importantly, your income ability, because the world is going to anybody who can code. And going back to one of your earlier questions, Rob, I would suggest that all young people learn how to code. You don't have to learn French. You don't have to learn Japanese. Learn how to code, because that is the other language that people nowadays need to have. The other part of uh, number four is money. Try not to waste your money. You know, a lot of people, and me included, were in a position where I was doing a job that I hated to buy things that I didn't need, 
to impress people I didn't like. You know, you don't need validation by the things that you buy. It's your individual choice. If something makes you really happy, buy it. But if you can live within your means and save the rest, that will give you insurance to have the ability to create a, uh, a startup, to have the audacity of an original thought, because you're not beholden to somebody else, because you have money to say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to take three months off, I'm going to go and do this, I'm going to see how it goes. And number five, which probably takes every of the other four and puts it into one, is you've got to love yourself unconditionally, because we're never taught. Every state, uh, every ideology, every religion basically comes down to there is something wrong with you, and if you follow us, if you follow this set of principles, if you buy this uh, 99 you know course it will fill the missing in pieces and you will be complete and it, it is utter rubbish it took me 53 years of my life to actually understand this that i am pretty complete with all my flaws everything i'm complete now because i am complete i have the cognitive ability now to have original thoughts and original ideas and i can go out there and, you know, speak my truth, do my thing. So please do not buy into this, um, you're not complete, you are complete. Don't buy into the Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. No, only person who can complete you is yourself. You are complete, love yourself, which is the hardest thing to do. And once you're comfortable with yourself, then you are able to actually spread that love and joy to everybody else. And that's not woo-woo, that is science. If you can actually care for yourself, you're gonna care for everybody else afterwards. Um, and can I break the mould? I know it's only week two of our podcast, Rob, but I would love to, Barrett, I'd love to ask for a sixth tip. And if you were going to give, uh, super short, if you were going to give six, tip number six to that 10-year-old boy in Leicester who's miserable at school, what would you say? What would your sixth tip be for him? Don't worry. Don't worry, things will work out. Thank you. that was our guest Barrett Sorolia thank you so much for tuning in on behalf of Selena and I we just like to say how lovely it is that you are listening and how much we appreciate it we also have a Patreon account so if you're feeling really generous and you can spare it please do support us because it helps us to keep doing what we're doing which is hopefully entertaining you thank you look after yourselves and join us again soon for someone else's story. And just so you know, this podcast was produced by Interrupt the Routine.